Well, good morning, Christ community. It is good to be with you today. It has been so wonderful being welcomed into a new church family, to be welcomed into this community. Uh, I have felt so warmly welcomed when uh, Michelle and I stood up here and were introduced. It was so exciting to go out into uh, the lobby and have people come up and say hello. We've just felt like uh, people are embracing us and, and really excited to see us. But I do have to tell you, there's kind of one thing that's been bothering me there's, there's something that's been going on that makes me say, I'm not so sure about these people. And it happens like this. It, it's happened many, many times. Someone comes up to me and they say, oh, Clayton, welcome to Christ Community. We're so glad you're, you're here. We've been praying for you. We're, we're so excited that you're going to be a part of your community. And then they say this, and we loved your sermon on hell. And I think... What? What's, what's wrong with people that they're so excited about this hell sermon? And people keep asking me how I got this job, and I, I just tell them, well, I gave them hell, and they asked for more. So I don't know what to think, guys, but uh, I, I'm wondering how long it'll be until I shake that reputation of being the hell guy, uh, what I have to do about that. Seriously, though, I, I'm so glad to be here. It has been uh, really wonderful to be introduced. And this is kind of a, an interesting moment when you are introduced to a new church family. Um, one of the things that you should know about me, and it'll come up over and over again, it'll come up in stories I tell and things like that, is that I grew up in a foster family. My family uh, took in teenage foster girls all throughout my life, so we had over 350 girls come through our home over from since I was nine months old until I moved out. And we often had this moment where I would come home from school and my mom would say, hey, you got a new sister today. And this would be like probably once a month or so. And <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it was weird until I was in like third grade and other people didn't have this happening. Um, but I would come home and I would meet my new sister and we'd have this moment where it, we'd be like, okay, I don't know you, you don't know me, we're kind of strangers right now. I, I don't know if we're going to get along. I don't, know how, I don't know how you're going to change my life. I don't know how you're going to affect our family and our home. I, I don't know what this is going to be like. But here's what I do know. Your family now, you are loved, you are welcome here, you belong here. This is a place where you matter, where you are wanted. We might be strangers at the moment, but from here on out, we're going to be family. And that's how I feel already with you guys, and that's how I want you to feel with me. I, I'm so looking forward to getting to know you. Um, I know that in this community, over the years, there are going to be people who I laugh with and I cry with. People are going to teach me new things about God just because my title's teaching pastor doesn't mean you guys aren't going to be teaching me a whole lot. There are people here who are going to share their secrets with me, people I'm going to share my secrets with you. There are people who are, at, in years, I'm going to say, these are some of my dearest friends. There are people here who are going to shape the lives of my children, who are going to help them know Jesus more. There are people who are going to, I'm going to be present for your moments of greatest sorrow and greatest joy, and you're going to be present for some of my moments like that. There are people here that I'm going to hurt. I, I apologize ahead of time, and I'm going to have to ask for your forgiveness. And some of you are going to hurt me, and I'm going to offer my forgiveness to you. And there are people here, hopefully all of you, that we're going to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and we're going to look out into the world and we're going to say, how can we love people together? How can we share the good news of Christ with people? How can we bring the kingdom of God more where we are? And we're going to serve God together. And I'm so excited that even though at this moment we're kind of strangers, we are also family. And here on out, I'm looking forward to getting to know my new family. So thank you for welcoming us so well, and we're looking forward to getting to know you more. And of course, when, when things get hard, okay, this is, this is what gonna, I'm going to say, okay? We've already been through hell together. We're going to get through this, all right? 
Let's uh, turn to our passage. John chapter 15 is what we're going to be looking at today. We are partway through a series that we're calling Dinner in a Hostile World. We've been looking at a, a section of teaching that Jesus gave on the last night of his life. It's found in the book of John, which is one of the biographies written about Jesus in the New Testament. And what's going on here is Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested and killed the very next day. And he wants to give his followers some final encouragement and instruction. He wants to pray for them. And he wants to get them ready for what's about to happen and what will come in the, the months and years afterwards. And so this is a really important section of scripture. And we've been studying it in order to prepare ourselves for Good Friday and Easter. This is a season called Lent. And it's a season of preparation for uh, the, 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 the big holidays of Good Friday and Easter. And so we're studying Jesus' kind of final words here as a preparation for that celebration. So let's read together in John chapter 15. If you've got your Bible, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 17 verses here just to get the kind of big overview, and then we'll dig in. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whoever, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Sometimes when we read scripture, we uh, do a couple of different things. One of the things that we do is we examine the passage to see what it's saying. So we ask lots of questions uh, from the passage to try to see what's going on there. But that's not all that we do when we read scripture. One of the things we also do is we let scripture examine us. We let scripture ask us questions to see what's going on with us. And that's really the posture I want us to take as we study this passage today. I want to look at three questions that this passage forces us to ask ourselves as we read it. And the first question is this, what's your vine? What's your vine? Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. And what he's saying with this is really two things. The first thing he's saying is this, if you want to be one of God's people, you have got to be connected to Jesus. If you want to be one of God's people, you've got to be connected to Jesus. The image of the vine is really common in scripture, and it's consistently used throughout the Old Testament to represent one thing, 
the people of Israel. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 5 says this. There's, there's this big, long description of a vineyard and a vine and a whole story that the prophet tells about this. And then it says this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah, which is another name for Israel, are the vines that he delighted in. The images over and over and over again, I could give you tons of examples of this, but it was so common of an image for the people of Israel that it was actually kind of a, a cultural national symbol in the time of, of Jesus' day. They'd actually put uh, over the entrance to the temple this giant carving of a golden vine with these big clusters of grapes. And so when you would go into the temple, you would see this symbol representing God's people there. And this meal that the disciples are having with Jesus was in Jerusalem. They had actually been there for a feast for an entire week, for a festival there. And so I guarantee that that very day they had been to the temple, they had seen this carving, they would know that symbol. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, one thing pops into their mind when that happens. It would be like someone coming along in our day saying, I am the stars and the stripes. I am the liberty bell. I am the bald eagle. We know exactly what those symbols are for. They're American symbols representing our national heritage. Now, in a thousand years, if someone read something like that, they might be like, what are you talking about? The stars, what, what does it mean that they're a bell and all this stuff? But in our day, you hear that, you know exactly what they're referring to. And so when Jesus says this, it would be like someone saying, you know what, if you want to look at me, this, look at me if you want to know what a real American is like, if you want to know what it really means to be a citizen of the United States, if someone was saying those things. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it really means to be a part of the nation of Israel, if you want to really know what it means to be one of God's people, if you want to know what, what God always intended for his people to be like, look at me. But of course, if someone came through and said, you know, I'm the commander in chief, I'm the constitution, I, I'm Lady Liberty, we would look at them and say... That guy's a little crazy, don't you think? And in fact, if, if, if someone said that and they had a lot of followers and a lot of people who believed that about them, we might actually say that person's kind of dangerous, don't you think? And that's what the leaders in Jerusalem thought about Jesus. He's saying really bold things by saying this. Seven different times in the book of John, he, he shares these what we call I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. All of these are national symbols of Israel. So he's saying, if you want to really be a part of this, be with me. And so the leaders are saying, ah, we don't trust this guy, which is why he's about to be executed as a threat to national security. That's what's going to happen the very next day. Jesus is saying, if you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be connected to the people of God, you have got to be connected to me. We've been talking about this through this past chapter, chapter 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to become one of God's people is to be connected with Jesus. You don't get born into God's people. You don't become one of God's people by default. You have to be deliberately connected to Christ. That's what he's getting at with this image of the vine. But he's also getting at a second thing here. He's saying, if you want to be truly alive, you've got to be connected to Jesus. He's saying, if you want to know what vibrant, abundant life is, you've got to be connected to me. That's what the image of the vine and the branches is all about. He, the, the branches draw their life from the vine. They get their vitality from the vine. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be alive and fully alive, you've got to know me. Everybody has a vine, you know. You have a vine. I have a vine. Each one of us has a vine. Your vine is what you say. If I don't have this, I'm not fully alive. I'm not really living if I don't have this. If, if I don't have this, I will not have my deepest needs met. It's the thing you look to to say, the deep needs of my soul are going to be satisfied by this. It's going to provide for me my need for acceptance and security, my need for meaning and purpose. The thing you look to for that, that's your vine. 
What is it for you? For some people, it might be their kids. They say, if my kids are successful, if they're thriving, if they're doing well, then I feel alive. I feel good about life. So you pour everything into saying, I'm going to make my kid the top of the class, an all-star on the field. They're going to be a virtuoso musician. I'm going to pour everything I can into my kids, give them the best experiences. When they make the team, life is good. When they're the champion, you're on top of the world. But when they get cut, you're crushed. You live and die by the success of your kids. That's what makes you feel alive. That's your vine. For some of you, it might be academic success if you're a student. I, I work with college students right now, and they're driven and they're motivated, and for most of their life, they have lived and died by their grades. You know, they, they ace a test, they're on top of the world, things are good. If they, they get a C-, minus, just all is lost. Their vine is their success in their schooling. It could be anything. Is it getting, for you, is it getting a, a guy or a girl to like you? Is it getting the promotion, the bonus, financial security, looking good? What, what could it be that you draw your life from? Jesus says, I am the true vine. What that means is that all other vines are false. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, that doesn't mean that all of these things are bad things. I'm not against any of this stuff of, of success for your kids or, or getting good grades or any of that sort of thing. The problem is when we look to those things to be the ultimate source of our life, they fail us. They don't work. They, don't, they leave us high and dry. When you say, this is what's going to make or break my life, this is what is going to fulfill me, they can't actually do that. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And again, in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. The needs of our hearts are far too big for anything other than God to fill them. It is only by being connected to Jesus that we can be truly alive. Now, here's the thing. Some of you here think that you're connected to Jesus, but maybe you aren't. I mean, think about Jesus' situation. He's got 12 followers that have been with him for three years. They've been around him day in and day out. And the whole time, one of them has been a traitor. And no one knew it except for Jesus. No one knew that Judas wasn't the real deal. He looked a lot like the other disciples. He was around Jesus a whole lot. But he wasn't drawing his life from Jesus. He was drawing his life from something else. My, my wife and I have a garden in our backyard. Actually, I should say my wife has a garden in our backyard. I'm terrible with plants. The, the main thing I do for the garden is try to avoid running over anything with a lawnmower. But I'm not, actually not very good at that. So one time I was actually weed whacking and I kind of go around the edge of the garden and zip, uh, get a little tomato plant. I just sort of lop a branch off and I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I pick it up and I look at it and there's a little tomato growing on it. And it's a little bit green starting to turn red. And I think, oh, well, maybe if I just set it over here, she won't notice. It'll be okay. And so I leave it in there and then I look at the tomato and I think, oh man. It, it's surrounded by other tomatoes. They're, they're, you know, looking good. It looks about the same. It's leaning up against the plant. It's right there. But I know that in a couple of weeks, if I come out, there's going to be a huge difference between the tomatoes that are on the, on the plant and the one that's just sitting next to it. Some of you are like that. Maybe, maybe you'd say, I, I think I'm connected to Jesus, but it's because your parents brought you to church as a kid. You got confirmed or something. And, but ever since then, it sort of hasn't really been a factor. It's not like you've said, well, no, I reject Jesus. But, you know, sort of after you got all that childhood stuff done, that, it never really mattered that much. You'd still say, well, you know, my religion is Christianity, but, you know, it's sort of just by default. For some of you, you're, you're around church stuff a lot. 
You know, you come to Christ's communion pretty regularly, you're here. But for you, you kind of think of it like this. You know, God's stuff, church stuff, is like a good part of a well-rounded life. You know, you get you, you, you physically fit, and you call your parents once a week, and you save for retirement, and you do all this stuff, and you kind of get God on the side. It helps you have some comfort, some peace, a little moral guidance. But it's, it's just a part of life. It's not the center of life. It's not the thing that you organize your life around. It's just, I got space in my life for Jesus, but he's not the source of my life. If that's you, you might want to ask yourself the question, am I, am I really connected to Jesus or am I just nearby him? Is that really where I draw my life from or is it something else? How do you know what your vine is? How do you know where you're really drawing your life from? The thing that tells us is what drives our behavior. Here's the principle. You obey whatever it is you think will give you life. You obey whatever it is you think will give you life. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is one of the trickiest verses in this passage because when you read it, at first it looks like it's saying, okay, if you want God to love you, you've got to obey. You've got to perform to get God's love. You've got to earn God's love. He'll love you if you do the right things. But the reality is the exact opposite is true. We know from throughout Scripture uh, that it is actually the reverse. Even John himself says this very clearly in another book that he wrote, 1 John. He says, we love because God first loved us. The love of God comes first even before our obedience. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, I think the, the verse is actually a description of a principle that holds true throughout life. It's the principle that if you really believe that something's going to give you life, it is going to be the thing that shapes how you act. So if you think success at work is going to be the thing that makes or breaks my life, then work is going to dominate your schedule, your time, your attention, and you're going to get more and more of your energy to that. It's going to shape your decisions all throughout your life. If, if being in a romantic relationship is the thing that makes you feel alive, it's going to change uh, your behavior. It's going to change how you dress, what you're interested in in order to attract another person. You might even stay in a dating relationship you know is really unhealthy just because you think, if I don't have this person, I'm not going to be fully alive. I won't be fulfilled without this. So it shapes your behavior. If you think looking good or, 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 or presenting yourself well to people is the thing that sort of determines your well-being, then your, your life's going to revolve around how you dress or your, your, your fitness routine or your diet and so on. It's going to shape your behavior if you think it's going to give you life. So if you think that Jesus is, gonna, is the thing that's going to give you life, then the things that he tells you to do, the things that he commands, you know, hey, it might be hard, it might be difficult, there might be a sacrifice in this, but if Jesus says it, Jesus, the one who gives me life, says it, I'm going to do it because it'll lead to flourishing, it'll lead to growth, it'll lead to something good on the other side of this because he's the one who I draw my life from. What shapes your behavior? What gets your time, your attention, your money? What's your vine? That's the first question. The second question this passage forces us to ask ourselves is this. Where's your fruit? Where's your fruit? Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. What, what does Jesus mean by fruit here? He actually gives some examples in the passage. It's not just these things, but it's at least these things. The first kind of fruit Jesus mentions is prayer. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you... Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Again, in verse 16, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. If you remain connected with Jesus, 
It is going to be so natural for you to start to bring the needs that you have to Jesus. If, you, if Jesus is the source of your life, you're going to say, well, I'm going to look to him whenever I've got something going on in my life to have him be the one who meets my needs. And I don't just mean like a set-aside time of prayer. I, I, you should have that. But I mean also throughout your life, just sort of naturally bubbling up. So when someone's talking with you and they say, you know what, my kid's going through this really hard situation, or I'm sick, you're not just going to say, oh, man, that's too bad. I'm so sorry. You're actually going to stop and say, okay, can I pray for you right now? Can I just give you a, a, a quick uh, prayer? Or maybe you're going through a situation uh, with family or work or something, and it's just bewildering, so confusing. It's going to be natural for you to just say, God, I need wisdom. Help me figure this out. Or when you do something that you know you shouldn't have done, and, and, and it comes to mind that the thing that you're naturally going to do is actually turn to God with that and say, I'm so sorry, forgive me. Help me with this. I, is there anything I can do to make amends for what I've done? And you're going to do this naturally. It's going to just flow out of you. One of the fruits you're going to see if you're connected to Jesus is an increasing prayer life. Another piece of fruit you're going to see is joy. Look at verse 11. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, this is a, a weird verse that kind of frustrates me because I'm not like a perky person. Um, and so when I see this, I'm like, do I have to just have a smile on my face because I'm connected to Jesus and everything's going to be good? It's not saying that. It, remember Jesus is saying, you're going to have my joy. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he's got the whole range of emotions. He gets angry, he gets sad, he gets excited, he gets, he gets happy. He gets the whole deal. So it's not just going to flatten things out. He's actually called at times a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. So what having Jesus' joy doesn't look like is everything's happy, everything's good, nothing troubles you anymore. What it does mean, though, is that there's this underlying bedrock experience of the goodness of God, of a hope, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. In, in a few uh, verses later, in chapter 16, we're going to get to this in a, uh, a couple of weeks, Jesus describes this kind of joy like the joy of a woman in labor. Now, I've never been in labor, but I've seen labor... And it doesn't look like it lacks pain. It doesn't look like it's pleasant. But there is a joy in it, isn't there? Because you know that on the other end of this pain, something really amazing is going to happen. A new life is going to come into the world. This precious child that you have been waiting for is going to be here. And you are going to welcome them in. And you are so excited for them that the labor is full of hope, even though it's also full of pain. This is how followers of Jesus experience suffering. It's still hard, it still hurts, but we know that on the other end, the things that we most deeply long for in life, the, the knowing God more, being more like Jesus, seeing the kingdom of God show up, that's what comes on the other side of the suffering. And so we say, we've got hope in the midst of this. We have Jesus' joy in it. If you're connected to Jesus, one of the fruits you're gonna see is joy. A third piece of fruit that Jesus highlights is the fruit of love. And he's not just talking about kind of warm, fuzzy, sentimental love. He's talking about deep, committed, sacrificial love. Look at verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This goes way beyond natural love. This is not, as long as I enjoy you, I'm going to love you. Or, as long as you're a person who's kind of like me, I'm going to love you. This is not, well, as long as it fits with my schedule and my energy level, then I'm going to love you. No, this is where you put the needs of another person above your own. This is where you give until it hurts. This is a love that looks like Jesus laying down his life for us on the cross. If you're connected to Jesus, one of the fruits you're going to see is sacrificial love. Prayer, joy, love. The fruit that Jesus is describing here 
is so much more than becoming kind of a decent moral person. That's what a lot of people think that kind of church and God and religion are all about. Sort of become a nice upstanding person in society, you know? That's kind of what it does for you. But here's the thing. You don't need God for that. I know lots of decent moral people who have no interest in God. That's not what Jesus is describing here. That's not what he's offering here. He's offering something here much, much bigger, something much, much deeper. This is an inner transformation, a renewal of a person. What's happening here is that the life of Jesus is entering into your life and it's transforming you from the inside out. You're going to start praying like Jesus prayed. You're going to start loving like Jesus loved. Jesus' joy is going to come into your life. So the life of God is going to come into your life and work into every nook and cranny of your personality and start bursting out in all sorts of unexpected ways. This is an utter renovation of life. In Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christianity is not about becoming a better person. It's about becoming a new person. Someone who looks like Jesus. Now, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Because it can be easy to sort of like twist this in our minds to think, okay, if I want God to love me, if I want to be connected to God, i got to start acting like Jesus. So if I sort of get things together, then I can be more connected to God. That's not what's saying here. It's actually the reverse. God isn't saying, oh, if you get your mess sorted out, if you sort of get your life together, then you can come to me. He's saying, no, 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 come to me. Mess and all, sin and all, everything. Just come to me. And by being connected to me, then the transformation is going to happen. The transformation is going to be the evidence of your connection with me. This is why verse 8 says it this way. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. The connection to God comes first then your life starts to get transformed in that order. The fruit is the result, not the cause. It's the proof, not the prerequisite. You bear fruit because you're connected to Jesus. You're not connected to Jesus because you bear fruit. You get it? Good. Hey, I did it. I thought that might have just been a gym thing, but, you know, he complained about his dog and how disobedient his dog was, but the whole time I was thinking, he's got these people really well trained. This is good. Let me say just a couple other things about fruit. It doesn't necessarily come easily or quickly, okay? Just think about the image that Jesus uses here. He's talking about fruit. Fruit doesn't just sort of appear on the vine fully formed. It starts off small and it gets bigger and it develops and ripens. That's how it works in our lives. So if you're sitting here thinking, you're like, okay, I've been connected to Jesus for a little while now. And, you know, you're describing joy and prayer and all this stuff that I can't say that I look like that yet. Does that mean I'm not really connected to Jesus? I want to tell you this. If you look at your life, ask the question, is the fruit growing? Don't ask how big it is. Ask what direction it's going. That's the really important thing. It emerges over time, and God knows this, and so he helps us along. But that's also why I think it might actually be difficult, because the way that God helps us bear more fruit is by actually allowing suffering to come into our lives, to let difficulty and challenge come into our lives. Look at verse 1. He says, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God allows difficult things to come into our lives, and the result is going to be one of two things. That difficulty, that suffering is either going to cut you off from God, or it's going to prune you. If you're not really connected to the vine, the suffering is is going to drive you away from God. It's going to cut you off from God. It's going to expose the fact that you're not really drawing your life from Jesus. For, For some people, suffering just crushes them. It causes them to wither. 
I think of a, a person my wife knew. She was a, a teacher at Bartlett High School. And a number of years ago, uh, one of her students' parents was diagnosed with cancer. And it just had a devastating effect on his life. And not just in terms of his health, but in terms of how he related to the world around him. He just sort of withdrew from the world. He stopped doing the things that he usually did. He stopped communicating with his friends and family. He basically uh, retreated into himself and cut the rest of the world off. But that isn't the only way to respond to suffering, even the same suffering. Let me show you a photo here. This is from my wedding. There's a couple of remarkable things about this picture. The first is how I managed to get a woman that beautiful to marry a man with that hair. I don't know. Um, The other remarkable thing is the woman who's standing just over my shoulder in the red dress there. Her name is Anna. She is one of my wife's childhood best friends. And yesterday was actually the third anniversary of her death. What you can't tell in the picture is that uh, Anna's body is full of cancer. At the age of 17, she was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. And for over a decade, she went through just a, a horrific regimen of treatment. And she ultimately died a painful death. It was the kind of suffering that ought to destroy a person, but it didn't destroy Anna. The reason was, was that Anna deeply loved Jesus, and she was convinced that Jesus deeply loved her. And so she said, through thick and thin, whatever happens here, I'm going to hold on to Jesus even more tightly. And the result was that the suffering that she experienced actually caused her to flourish as a human being. She had a a rare form of cancer that uh, usually only uh, children under the age of two had. And so some young kids would have this, but she was one of the oldest people ever to have it. And so she was one of the only people who was able to consent to new experimental treatments for this kind of cancer. And so over 10 years, she helped to advance doctors' knowledge of how to really care for hurting kids with this. And and she was able to actually speak up for a community that normally didn't have a voice. And so she started a foundation and raised awareness and money. And through that, she got to befriend hundreds of little kids who were going through tough stuff. And she got to share the love of Christ with them and with their families, to be with them in their suffering because she was someone who, who knew what they were going through but had hope in the midst of it. So she could be an incredible blessing. She even went to grad school to study counseling because she knew, she's like, I got to figure out how to help people who are going through terminal illness like me. She knew that she might not live through her grad program. She knew that she might live long after it. But she said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to help people with this. She actually became a more joyful person, a a more vibrant and alive person. She became a more committed friend because of her suffering, because of her cancer. But the reason that happened was because she said, I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to draw my life from him, even though other things are tearing my life down. That is what causes us to flourish. If we are connected to the vine, suffering prunes us. It gives us more life, more flourishing, more abundance. We become more the people God intended us to be. It becomes a gateway into greater fullness of life, not less. But it only happens if we hold on to Jesus. If you aren't connected to the vine, though, when suffering comes, you let go of Jesus. You hold on tight to whatever it is you think is going to keep you alive, and you let go of whatever you think isn't. And if Jesus isn't your vine, you're going to let go of him. But if Jesus is your vine, you're going to hold on to him, even if you have to let go of all sorts of other things. That's how suffering works in our lives. It refines us and shows us what's really going on. If Jesus is the source of your life, you will begin to see more fruit even in the midst of suffering. So that's the question. Where's your fruit? The third question that this passage forces us to ask is, who is your friend? Who is your friend? This is where it starts to get really deep. Uh, We're going to look here at what I think is the most profound and mysterious sentence ever uttered in human history. And I don't say that lightly. Verse 9 says this. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Let me unpack this a little bit. Have you ever wondered what God was doing before he created the world? It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Let me tell you what he was doing. He was enjoying himself. He was literally enjoying himself. Followers of Jesus believe that God is the Trinity. He's one God in three persons. It's very mysterious. But we believe that all the way into eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have always existed. And what were the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit doing in eternity? Well, I know at least one thing that was going on. One thing that was going on is this. God the Father was looking at God the Son. And when he saw God the Son, what did he see? He saw the most beautiful, glorious, amazing thing he could possibly see. And what did the Father feel when he saw his Son? He felt the most pure, perfect, intense, overwhelming delight in what he saw. The love between the Father and the Son has no equal among human loves. It is the love that is the source of all other loves. It is the love that defines love. When we say that God is love, this is what we mean. We mean that within the life of the Trinity... It has always been and always will be an unrelenting, unwavering, undiluted celebration of pure joy between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what is going on even now among the members of the Godhead. We get a little glimpse of this when Jesus gets baptized. He goes to get baptized and John the Baptist takes him down into the water. And as he comes up out of the water, the heavens open up. And the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, and we hear the voice of God the Father, and he says, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. God the Father sees his Son, and he loves what he sees. He's so proud. He says, That's my boy. He's so excited to see his Son. He's so pleased in him. This is the kind of passion and joy and love the Father has for the Son. And here is what is so mysterious. Jesus says that passion, that delight, this mystery at the heart of the universe is now the experience I offer you. I'm going to love you the same way my Father has loved me. That's why Jesus can say, my joy is going to be in you. Because he's saying the joy of being eternally loved, my experience is now going to be your experience. The thing your hearts really long for, to be fully accepted, to be perfectly delighted in, that's going to happen for you. That's why he says your joy can be complete because the only thing that can actually complete the longings of your heart and fulfill your needs is the love of God. And Jesus is saying, I've experienced this for all eternity and now you can. If you're connected to me, this can be your experience. That's why Jesus is the vine. Because being connected to him actually connects us to the life and love of God. Here's the thing. Not only are we recipients of God's love, we're actually partners in God's work. This is what Jesus means when he says that we're friends of God. He's not just saying that we kind of have a buddy-buddy relationship with God, kind of a casual thing going on. What he's saying is described in verse 15. Look at it. It says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying we get to be partners with what God is doing. Jesus isn't just kind of arbitrarily ordering us around. He's actually letting us in on the plan, describing what he wants with the world. He's sharing his deepest desires for humanity and for the world, and he's inviting us in, bringing us in on the project. 
He's saying, look, I've got this huge, massive thing I've been working on. I've been trying to bring people from every people group on the planet into a relationship with me. I'm going through the world and I'm offering forgiveness. I'm freeing people from guilt and shame. I'm sending people into every corner of society to fill it with my beauty and creativity and glory. I'm I'm healing relationships. I'm transforming communities. I'm I'm ridding the world of injustice. I'm I'm, I'm cleaning up evil. I'm going through. I'm giving people an opportunity to escape hell and death and eternity separated from me. Actually, I am creating a whole new world. And I want to know, do you want to get in on the project? This is so exciting. Do you want to come partner with me? That's what God is doing by making us his friends. That's what he's inviting us into. It's like being best friends with someone who is so excited about something. And, 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 they, and because they're so excited about it, you become excited about it, even though you weren't interested in it before. And that's why Jesus can say these crazy things about prayer. Like, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it. Whatever you ask, I'll do it for you. He can say these things because what's happening is this. You're, you're being around him. You're picking up his excitement. You're so passionate about it. You're like, God, you know what I really want? I want this. I want this person to, to know you. I want these people to be helped. These people are suffering. Can you relieve their suffering? You start telling all of these things. And you, God says, that's what I want too. You picked that up from me. So when you ask for that, of course I'm going to answer that prayer. Of course I'm going to follow through on that because we're partners together. We're in this project together. We're friends. It's astounding. God loves us. He wants us to be his friends. But if you've been thinking about this, you might be wondering, okay, that sounds amazing. Uh, In fact, it sounds a little too good to be true. Some people might get to be God's friends, but you don't really know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my experiences. I mean, some people might get to be that close to God, but he would never let me that close. I I don't deserve that. Here's the thing. If you're thinking that, you're right. You don't deserve to be God's friend. I don't deserve to be God's friend. None of us do. We're, We're sinners. What that means is we've cut ourselves off from God. We don't deserve, we're the branches that deserve to be chopped off the vine and thrown into the fire. That's us. We don't deserve to be connected. So how is it that Jesus can offer these things to us? Well, it's because instead of cutting us off, Jesus cuts himself off. Jesus is the one person who deserves God's love, who deserves God's friendship, his affection. He never deserved to be cut off from God. Yet that's exactly what he does. When he dies on the cross, he's cut off from God. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus takes the experience that we deserve so that we don't have to. We're the ones who cut ourselves off from the source of life, but he's the one who dies. He dies the death we deserved in our place so we don't have to die it. That's what it means. There has never been a love like this, that Jesus would die for his enemies in order to make them into his friends. This is why we're about to celebrate communion. The bread is a symbol of this cup is a symbol of this. They're signs of the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it's a meal that we share together and we share in the presence of God. Who do you eat with? You eat with your friends, you eat with your family, you eat with your loved ones. So this is a meal where we gather as the friends of Jesus. This is a feast of those who are connected to the vine. And that's what we're about to celebrate, the fact that because of what Jesus has done, we can enter into relationship with God and be his friends. There's some of you here today who you would say, this sounds wonderful, but I don't know if I've ever kind of gotten connected with this. I don't actually know if I'm a friend of God, but I want to be. 
I'm about to pray here, and this is a prayer that all of us can pray, but this is especially for you if you're saying, this isn't me, but I want it to be me. You can just sort of join in your heart and pray along with this as we pray, and ask God, say, God, I want to be your friend. Forgive me. Welcome me in. Connect me to the vine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you love us. We are amazed that you want to be our friend. But we know we we don't deserve to be your friends. We're sinners. We deserve to be cut off. We are so sorry, God. Forgive us. Jesus, we know that it's because you laid down your life for us that we can be connected with you. Lord, we trust you to give us life. We don't just want to be around you. We don't just want to be associated with you. We want to be deeply connected to you. We want you to be our vine. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives. Connect us with the life of God. Cause us to bear fruit, the fruit of prayer and joy and love. Make us like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.